Okay, if you've got a Bible, I hope that you do, turn to Mark chapter 7. I was thinking this morning of some of the books of the Bible we've went through. We went through several epistles, went through Ephesians, we have been went through Galatians, we've been through Philippians. We went through the book of Genesis. That was still wild that we did that, uh, all 50 chapters of it. Uh, we went through the book of Acts, and Mark is the first gospel that we've spent uh, time just exegeting the official word, going verse by verse is the easy way to say it, uh, going through the gospel of Mark. It is the abbreviated Cliff Notes version. Uh, it is got the word immediately in it a lot, or if you have a King James, it's got the word straightway in there a lot. It means now, and Mark is moving the narrative along. Uh, he doesn't follow in order, just giving you some review about the book we're going through. He doesn't go chronologically. He's highlighting what they we believe it was the early audience was potentially the Roman church that was under persecution, uh, hiding out in the catacombs underneath the city, that that was the audience for this book, and that Peter was dictating, not necessarily dictating, but Peter is the primary source of the book of Mark, because this book doesn't highlight Peter's successes, it highlights his failures, which is really interesting. So, here we are, Mark chapter 7, Jesus has just healed the demon-possessed little girl, and he had attributed that to the great faith of the Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile, who he had called a dog, and we talked about that last week, that she was, uh, that it was her persistent faith that Jesus responded to. Now, we are in verse 31 of chapter 7, and this is one of those things in the Gospels that are, is unique to Mark. This is the only place in the Gospels that you're going to find this story. So what we're going to read, it's Mark is the only one that mentions it. Um, so let's read it. We're going to read verse 31 through verse 37. And then we're going to pray and ask God to help us out with it. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the holy written word of God. They're not regular words. This is your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning, that you would help me to say it, explain what needs understood. God, open hearts and open ears, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, here we are. Jesus is doing some weird geography. 
So I want to point that out because if you were looking at a map, and I'm sorry I don't have one, if you got a little map, my, my Bible has a map right down here. I don't know if your, your Bible has one. But if you look at the Sea of Galilee and then you scooch up to the northwest to about 20 miles to Tyre, which is a Gentile area where the Syrophoenician woman was, and then you keep scooching up a little bit back to the northeast, uh, you get to Sidon, and it says he went uh, from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon, and then it says to the Sea of Galilee, which is all the way back down here, and he goes into the Decapolis, which is the ten-city Gentile region. He's been there before, passing through. It's kind of weird. There's no explanation for why Jesus went this route. It's like going to Ashland through Barbersville. That is not the way you get to Ashland. If you wanted to go to Ashland from here, you'd get on 52 and go to Ashland. If you got on the interstate and went to Barbersville and looped around on Route 60 to come back, somebody would say, I'm, I'm not sure you know where you're going. You, you can do it, but, but you went out of your way. So the Bible doesn't tell us why, and I'm just pointing it out because scholars really just like to argue over this stuff. I'm just pointing it out to you as the church that if you, if you were watching a map, and some of you are more meticulous, like, I'm interested in this Bible geography. And you're like, why in the world? Why did he do that? I, I would say it's because Jesus knew what he was doing all the time. Okay? I would say he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's got specific intentional purposes, including you sitting in these seats today. Not by accident, not by mistake. God knows what he's doing geographically and every other way. Okay? So that's the first thing I'm just going to point out. But he's just still in this Gentile area. What we don't know about this deaf, and he's not mute, he's got a speech impediment. Uh, it's kind of like in, in the ancient world, if you had a speech, you were deaf and a speech impediment, that typically meant you were born hearing and through a virus or something else, you lost your hearing. You, you became deaf. But early in life, you could hear, so there was some formation of words, but it didn't fully develop. That is probably what happened here. Most folks without speech pathology and all the wonderful, gracious miracles that God's given us in modern medicine today, without that help, a deaf person really, really would struggle to be able to communicate at all. So this guy has a, and what it means in Greek is he, he has a speech impediment. There is, there is another place in Scripture, one other place, where this word shows up, and it's actually in Isaiah, which we're going to look at a little bit later. So now, for all of you Bible scholars who may be saying, wait a second, this was written in Greek, and Isaiah was written in Hebrew. Okay, you can participate today, it's okay. So the, the New Testament's written in Greek, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, so why would we say those words are the same? Because uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus was born in a manger, the Jewish people going through Alexander the Great and the great conquest of uh, this whole world, and everybody is now speaking Greek, there was a lot of Jewish people that spoke Greek. So they needed a Bible in their language. Does anybody know what that is called? The Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Hebrew 
translated into Greek so everybody could read it in Greek. If you ever see in your Bible a little note and it says LXX, anybody ever seen that before? That's a reference to the Septuagint. What is really fascinating is that sometimes Jesus quotes from the Hebrew and sometimes he quotes from the Septuagint. Jesus could speak Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And who knows what else? These guys were probably smarter than us in some regards. You know what somebody that can speak three languages is called? Trilingual. You know what somebody who speaks two languages is called? Bilingual. What is one a person who speaks one? American. So, yes, that is a joke. Thank you, Daniel, for ruining the punchline. It's what brothers are for. But he's correct. So, really fascinating and really helpful. Do you know why it's helpful? Because you can go back to the Septuagint that Jesus quotes from, which he regarded as the Word of God, and you can see the Greek word usage for Old Testament passages and compare it to the way the New Testament used the same Greek word. Is everybody following that? So in the, in the New Testament, I can see how a word's used can be kind of confusing, and then I can find a parallel to it in the Old Testament. Just giving you guys a little, little Bible, Bible lesson this morning. This is not necessarily the sermon. It's just helpful for you to know because there's only one other place that we see this word in the Bible, and it's in the Greek Old Testament. And let's go to Isaiah 35. This is a messianic passage. In fact, I'm going to just read, starting with verse 1, because I want you to get the flavor. Just so you know, I was going to read all of chapter 34 as well, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do Isaiah 35. I want you to go home and read Isaiah 34. That's your Sunday afternoon homework. It is God's judgment on the nations. God is bringing judgment on the nations, and it is not pretty. Just for example, verse 9 of chapter 34, the streams of Edom, which here, that's where Esau's nation is, and that, that is a reference to all these nations. The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. And on and on Isaiah 34 goes. It's a judgment passage on the nations around Israel. Now, you get into chapter 35, and let's read, follow me here, how God starts talking about this new kingdom that's coming. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given, given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This is grace for all the foolish people sitting in this room. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is chapter 35, the hopeful, forward-looking redemption that is coming through the Messiah. And the Jewish rabbis, in particular in verses 5, I shut the Bible and shouldn't have, in verses 5 and 6, looked at this as one of the traits of the Messiah. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. I don't know if that sounds like anything Jesus may have been doing as we've been reading. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the, shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is the other place that Greek word shows up in the Septuagint. That same word there is the same thing here, this speech impediment that this guy had. Is Mark trying to tell us this Isaiah 35 passage that all you Jewish brothers and sisters know, this reference to a Messiah that opens up the eyes of the blind, unstops the ears of the deaf, and looses the tongue of the mute so that they would sing with joy? Is that something he wants to point to Jesus? Yes. That is exactly what he wants it to do. And anybody paying attention to the Scripture and knowing that in the, in the first century, seeing what Jesus was doing, this is what's rolling around. Is He the Messiah? Is He Isaiah 35? Is this Him? The answer is yes. And Mark is letting us know he's the only one that reports this story, but it's specific to that Isaiah 35 issue. Let's look a little closer at the miracle. They brought to him this man. He's, we've already talked about it. They begged him to lay his hand on him. Jesus' fame is all throughout the region. But typically, we think of today, because James says, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Anoint him with the oil, the prayer for the sick, the laying on of hands, the anointing of oil, that, that's become something we're familiar with, laying hands on somebody for prayer. In, in this time frame, the idea of laying hands on was more of for a blessing. It, that's what it was, that's probably what they were thinking. They just, they, they're like, just something. You are the great teacher and healer, just something. And Jesus does something a little weird. Let's go ahead and address the weirdness. Is that all right? This is not something that you would walk away from the service today if I did and say, that was powerful. You would probably walk away and say, I'm not sure we're coming back. And that is, 
Jesus puts his fingers in his ears. I don't know if you've had anybody else do that to you. It's a little weird if somebody else were to do it. I mean, even if, if Jennifer did that to me, I'd be like, what are you doing? He puts his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. We're going to be honest. It's a little weird. Jesus, the Messiah, takes him off to the side, puts his fingers in his ear, spits, and the way I'm seeing what he's saying here is, is like he spits in his hand and touches it and gets some of the spit and sticks it on his tongue. And then he prayed. I know, all the kids are like really listening now. <laughs> They're like, what, what sermon is this? Now, I want to address everything. There were people in this time frame that there were healers, shamans, witch doctors, whatever you want to call people that tried to do different things, and spit was considered uh, a key ingredient. In other words, this guy is endowed with some kind of power from somewhere, some god or spirit, and the spit was some. So that was something in that. And I, we don't know. I've read several commentaries. Was Jesus in this region of Gentiles, and he was letting this guy know in a way that he would understand, I know what I'm doing. Is it a reference to uh, the? Uh, this whole chapter has been about Pharisees before here and traditions and unclean hands. Is Jesus doing another thing because spit in the Old Testament was considered an emission that was unclean? Is Jesus trying to say, nothing I do is unclean? Is that what's happening? I don't know. I honestly don't know. So I'm not going to try to give you some kind of significance. I just know this is what he did. But I do have one other observation on this verse that may be possible. Look at the beginning of the verse again. So I wanted to get the weirdness out just to talk about it so we can talk about what's really on my heart in this passage for us today. When I was reading this and praying about, Lord, what, what, are we, what am I talking about in this passage? It's what, what Jesus does in verse 33 at the very beginning. And taking him aside from the crowd privately. Jesus is surrounded by people and he takes this guy aside and does this. So we know he's not doing it for a show. Because there's plenty of preachers on TV doing plenty of weird stuff and it is 100% a show with $39.99 attached, you can get whatever you need. Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is not trying to be weird for the sake of being weird so that people will go away like, wow, this guy's unique and eccentric and, I mean, all the great ones are, right? And, you know, that's not, in fact, we know that he's, he's at the end of this, he says, don't tell anybody what I did. We know what Jesus' motivation is because 
when we get to the end of the verse, uh, or at the beginning of verse 34, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, be opened. That word sighed, I don't know if you picked it up in Isaiah 35, it was the very end, that God's going to put an end to all the sighing. But Jesus is sighing. It's similar to when he wept over Lazarus. It's similar to when he looks at the crowd and has compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The sighing, and it actually can mean groaning. He was compassionate towards the condition of this man. And I think what is being said here when it says that he took him away privately is that this is one of these little moments where God, knowing exactly what this man needed and exactly how he needed it, in the way that he needed it, that's what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is always doing exactly what is needed in a way that glorifies him and is for our good. That is what he is always doing. God works together all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. God is working all things together for good. All of the things, he's working them together for good. All of them. All of them. There isn't anything left out. He's working all problems and all devastations and all sicknesses and all deaths and all heartache and all promotions and all blessings with babies and all wonderful, exciting things that happen in our lives. He's working all of it together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Jesus knows what this guy needs the way he needs it, so he takes him privately aside. And the thing about that that really does get to me is God knew this guy in the same way that he knows you. He knows you and knows what you need when you need it, the way you need it. God knows you. This is really a big deal. You are not just a barcode or a number to God, a nameless, faceless, vanilla, nothing sitting here in church in the Bible Belt. God knows every molecule in your body. Wouldn't be surprised if He's got a name for every molecule in our bodies. There's no Scripture for that. But there is a Scripture. Don't have to turn there. It's in Luke chapter 12. And it says that every hair on your head is numbered. Now you've heard that before. But the purpose of Jesus saying that was to say, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them is forgotten by your Father in heaven. Are you not of more value than the sparrows? Fear not then. The hairs on your head are numbered. That's what he says. God knows you. 
This is simultaneously exhilarating and terrifying. Because the holy, righteous judge of all things knows every single thing about you. Everything. All my sinfulness. All the things. There are things that you will go to your grave with and nobody will ever know. But God knows. And that's the terrifying part. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The reason it's a fearful thing to fall into His hands because His hands are perfectly just and He knows every intention of your heart from the moment you came out of the womb to the moment you took your last breath. He knows everything. And the glorious part is that Jesus said, you are more value than sparrows. The glorious part is He has your hair numbered the glorious part is he takes this deaf mute, this deaf speech impediment man aside privately because he knew what he needed. This God who knows everything loves you. This God who knows everything about us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly knowing all that you have done and will do, and all that mankind has done and will do. He knows all of it and died for you while you were rejecting Him. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 139. I want you to hear the way that David talked about this. I want you to hear what the implications of God knowing you sound like. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is saying, God, you know everything about me. You know the words I'm going to say before I ever say them. And yet, he hems me in. This is not trapping you. How many times has the devil lied about your walk with God that you're trapped? You're trapped trying to serve him. It is a lie. This verse says you are hemmed in, like protected. You are hemmed in by Him from the front and from the back. You lay your hand upon me like a dad when a dog comes out of the neighborhood 
and I grab Arwen and put her behind me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, euphemism for hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall not find me, lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. God sees everything. For you formed. This is a weird transition. God knows everything. He sees everything. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about my life. He knows everything I'm going to say, everything I'm going to think. He's discerning my thoughts from afar. He knows every single thing. I can't go to heaven and escape him. I can't go to hell and escape him. I can't go to the bottom of the ocean and escape him. I can't go to the deepest dark blackness of night and escape him. He is everywhere. And the very next thing is for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, which is an allusion to the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, listen to these words, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There is a book with your name on it, and the author and finisher of your faith wrote it. He wrote out everything. When as yet, there were none of these days. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that, now listen to this transition. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, you could spend a long time in here just soaking it, read it, think about it, pray over it, talk about it. But the, the thrust of this psalm is you are known by God. You are known. 
And God knows what he needs to do in your life to get you where he wants you to be, and he will do it. I do want us to go to Luke chapter 12. I'm sorry, Daryl, I did not give you this one, but it is Luke 12, what I quoted earlier. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. If God knows us in this way, what do we do with the knowledge of God's knowing? What do you do when you find out that the creator of heaven and earth, infinitely powerful, unlimited in power, unlimited in his knowledge, unlimited in his glory, unlimited. What do you do when you find out he knows about the time you stole a Snickers bar when you were a little kid out of the store? What do you do? You know, and he knows why you did it. And he knows about you lying to your mom about it. And whatever else you've done, good or bad. Right up until this morning, yelling at the kids to get ready. Not that that happens on Sunday morning. Or fighting with your wife or your husband. Or yelling at somebody pulling out in front of you in traffic. Whatever, you know. Whatever stupid thing you're going to do this afternoon. What do we do in light of knowing about this level of God's knowing? What, what do we do with that? This is Jesus out of Luke. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Who are we talking about? Talking about God. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Don't be afraid of that person. This is the basis for all anxieties that we have going away. Here's who you should fear. The one who has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's the knowing. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. This is one of the head scratchers, obviously. Because he said, fear God who has the authority to throw in perfect judgment those who oppose him, they will be thrown into hell. And then he says, fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus, you told me, not to, you told me to be afraid, and then you told me not to be afraid. Within the same breath. So it's not like we went to some other verse to find that. Jesus said it in the same breath sentence. So when the Bible does this, there we have to think, right? You got you got to you got to think with me here. Jesus is not 
Jesus isn't expecting us to be geniuses, but he's expecting us to think. He's expecting us to chew on what he's saying. His disciples chewed on it a lot, and they were always like, Jesus, could you explain to us the parable? So if they were doing that, and they were there witnessing it, you and I are going to have to do some thinking. Don't just be a part of a sermon and be like, well, that was a weird one about spitting, healing. I'm going to go home and take a nap. You need, you have to think. So you got to think, if Jesus says you should fear in holy, reverential awe the king of the universe who knows you're rising up and you're sitting down and you cannot escape him. He knows everything about you. Fear him. He has the authority to throw into hell. All who are against him, fear him. And then he flips it right around and says, I'm talking to the people of God, though, who should fear him. But they should also know that the one who knows me and knows the number of hair on my head is more valuable than many sparrows. So you should not be afraid because this God who knows you, loves you, deeply cares, knows you, and loves you. So you should be afraid of Him. And that let you should not live your life in any kind of fear. Because it, if your fear is in the right place, you won't have any other fear. If you fear God as the king of the universe, there is no place to be afraid of losing your job. There is no place to be afraid of losing your health. There's no place to be afraid of dying unexpectedly. Does anybody have those fears? Job loss, money loss, family loss, life loss, health loss. Anybody have that ever? I'm pretty much covering all the fears, right? The big ones. Does anybody sit around and dread it? I had a conversation with somebody who just lost their husband, and they are very young, and it was a gut-wrenching conversation as I heard a little kid in the background who no longer has their daddy. And I was trying to imagine that for Jennifer. Would it be awful? Yes. But you don't have to be afraid because this is temporary. You don't have to be afraid because the one who knows you and loves you and calls you by name and may pull you aside privately to do what he needs to do and put his fingers in your ear because that probably comforted that guy. I don't know why, but Jesus knew what he was doing for that guy. That same God is the one that's telling us, fear not, you're of more value than these sparrows. Fear him. Get your priorities straight. Fear the God of heaven and live in awe of Him. But don't be afraid of what can happen in this world. Don't, don't be afraid of loss. Don't be afraid of job loss. Don't be afraid of health loss. Don't be afraid of anything. Because God is with you and knows you and is working all of these things for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose, in the pain and in the hurt and all of it, I can grab a hold of verses like this and say, I don't have to be afraid because I'm serving a God that knows me. I'm serving a God that specifically knows the way I am and He cares for me right 
where I am and will help me right where I am. I might need pull off to the side and Jesus do something for me that nobody else understands, but for me, my heart is comforted. My mind is put at ease. God, in a million, billion different ways, works with us where we are, who we are, when we need it, the way we need it. That's who He is. He's in charge of our lives, but He's in charge in a way that the comparison the sparrows is, you're way more valuable. He's in charge in a way that says, I have your ultimate good in mind. He's in charge in a way that says, you are called by name. Child, you are mine. When you walk through the waters, I will be there. That is who we are serving. My fear should be toward Him in all. My fear should not exist towards the world. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I fight with anxiety all the time. I fight with fear all the time. And these are the kind of verses that I go to like, like a sword, like a weapon, and say, Jesus told me, fear God, not this thing. That's what Jesus told me to do. So I'm going to fear God and not this thing that's in front of me. If God is for me, who can be against me? What will separate you from the love of Christ? Will persecution or nakedness or death or sword or famine? No, and all these things were more than conquerors. And I've said it before, but getting stabbed by a sword is not the moment that I say, oh look, I'm more than a conqueror, as I fall down backwards with a sword poking out of my chest. That is not probably what's going through your mind, but that's exactly what that verse says. Will a sword separate you from the love of Christ as it cuts off your head? No. Will a famine that starves you and your children to death separate you from the love of God? No. In all of those things, you're more than a conqueror. The mindset of the Bible-believing Christian is nothing on this earth can do anything to me but either hasten my approach to heaven or make me more of a light to the world around me. That's all that the trials and the frustrations and the setbacks can do. That's all they can do. Get me closer to heaven or make me a brighter light to the world around me. That's it. That's all they can do. When you start living and thinking that way, it's just way more freeing to say, hey, uh, I want to take this guy to lunch and tell him about Jesus because I've got nothing to lose. We live in a world where it's a lot harder to do that. Your job is in jeopardy. Everybody already knows it. HR departments. I hope nobody in here works in HR. Let's just say that the HR department would probably get a lot of the Pharisee treatment out of that. Anyway, I'm not. Um, it's like when I was growing up, we were taught not to tattle. Was anybody else like, don't be a tattletale? But now it's like we have a position called HR that's worth tattle. Sorry. I'm not against HR when it's done for good. <laughs> the powers turn for evil. It's how great is that darkness, I think is what Jesus said. Sorry. I got sidetracked. It is harder in our time and will be progressively harder as time goes on 
to be a Christian. We need to know these things. We need to know that we are known, that we are loved, we are valued, and our fear should be the holy reverential awe towards God who has the authority to cast into hell, meaning I don't have to be afraid of anybody else. Because that is the God that I am serving. I want us all to stand up if you would. I want everybody to bow your head with me if you would. I just want to ask this morning, we don't always do this, but is there anybody here that would say, I hear what you're saying about God knowing me, and I know he does, and it scares me that he does, but I don't know him, or I know of him, but I'm not serving him. I said a prayer maybe once. That prayer didn't stick because I'm not living for him at all. Is there anybody here who just this morning the Spirit is knocking on your heart and saying, you're mine? Would anybody this morning want to commit their life to Christ? I just want you to lift your hand and say, I need to. This is my morning. Maybe you go home and, listen, I, I, I trust God will do his work in the hearts that need, to, that need to hear the message of salvation. And I know that he will. But if anybody wants to talk afterwards, I'd love, love to talk with you. Lord, I pray this morning that this word would have your desired effect. That we would live in awe of knowing that we are known. The end of this, this passage we read said that the people were astonished. It's the only place that word is used in the New Testament in that way. They were astonished. They went on to say that you do all things well. Jesus, you do all things well in knowing us, in loving us, in dying for us while we were yet sinners, in hemming us in, putting your hand upon us. God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We don't deserve what you've given. And we stand in awe that you are merciful and filled with grace. Lord, I pray we would go out this week emboldened to speak, to be, to live as somebody that's been captured by God who knows us. Not in our own strength, but in your strength. Lord, we thank you for it in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Now while you're all standing, before you all go, I think we're going to show you a trailer. Maybe.
So creative ministry. We're, we're going to show you a trailer next week. Um, we'll get you next week. But uh, the creative ministry has been working on a movie. It's been, uh, how many of you saw the Christmas movie that we did? Quite a few of you saw that. Um, they've been working on a, a new project. They've been working on it for six, seven months. That's been a long, I mean, Chris, you wrote that. I don't know when. He wrote it two years ago. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll just come next week. Uh, we'll, we'll show the trailer, and uh, it'll be super duper exciting. So um, that is all. You are officially dismissed. Prayer tonight at 6. Go tell somebody you love them on the way out.